I'm Julia, and welcome to Unnecessary Angst, your local tipsy YA book podcast. We need like a slightly shorter tagline. I know. Well, I feel like I, I, I don't always say it, and like I will always mix it up too. Like it's never the quite the same. So Which is how you know. Better... No, no, no. That's perfect. That's how you know it's a tipsy podcast. Because oh, okay. we're never consistent. I haven't actually started drinking yet. But... Oh, I'm already completely, basically done with my first cider. Oh. About to start okay. my second. Okay, hold on. I'm going to catch, catch up. Catch up, Julia. Let's go. Yeah, chug the wine. Chug, chug, chug. I just took one long sip. <laughs> I can't chug wine. I don't know oh, anyone disgusting. who can. It... Oh, um, do you know the game Wine Hands? No. Do you... Oh my gosh. Okay, it's where you... This is a college thing. It goes along with, like, kind of underage. Mm -hmm. I learned this in Germany where we were technically of age, just as a disclaimer. (laughs) But it's where you have two bottles of wine in each hand, and you tape the bottles to your hand. So in order to get them off your hand, you have to drink both bottles. That's it. That's the entire... I mean, you might play, like, another game, like, with it, but that's the entire gist of it is, like, you have to finish the bottles that are taped to your hands. That's how you die. I. It was college frat boys who introduced me to it, so yeah. Maybe, right. maybe if you're, I mean, in college, I feel like we all had our tolerances built up a lot better. If I tried to do mm-hmm. that right now, I would be vomiting so much. <laughs> I'm like, after two glasses of wine, I'm like, okay, I'm, I feel <laughs> it. <laughs> because we don't drink for anything other than the podcast (laughs) truly like i went the first time i drank besides like with my parents because of the pandemic was going out to um a bar with my friends in new york city a couple weeks ago we had like one and a half things of beer and i was like okay (laughs) done (laughs) yeah it's crazy i think when i go to like i'm trying to slowly increase my alcohol consumption a little bit Mm -hmm. over the next couple of weeks slash month to prepare oh a gosh. to prepare for wine tasting so i don't absolutely oh, die in front yeah. of my bosses that would be awkward that would be so awkward maybe you need to start spitting <laughs> no Learn i refuse i refuse i will drink my wine i will be a champ like my wino mother come on i'd get disowned if i was spitting while wine tasting that's not allowed oh. in my family we're not as cultured as you guys. <laughs> well, I don't think my parents would spit either, but that's just from me having worked in wine. I don't feel weird about spitting my wine. That's fair. Oh, Epcot. And then, so I'm going to Epcot soon, and we're going to be in Epcot on 4th of July. I'm going to have Skyla and my mom with me, so I need to be able to, like, ingest a lot of alcohol but not have the alcohol affect me so i need to slowly build up my tolerance a little bit better hence why i'm drinking two ciders tonight instead of one Hmm. working my way into it but before we get into that julia how has your week (laughs) been how are you doing are we starting the podcast now (laughs) yeah we're (laughs) it was a cold open it's fine (laughs) it was a cold open um i am drinking a nebbiolo uh italian nebbiolo long nebbiolo um and I, my gosh, my week has been a flurry of activity. I was starting my new internship, um, so I'm just trying to get acquainted with everything, which has been interesting. It's such a change of scene for me, scenery, scene. 
um, change of environment because I've been working in the past for small companies and was mostly like their like basically first hire not not quite with one but basically so this is an established company with about I think 200,000 plus employees around the world and I'm working for their North America offices so it's a little more focused but it's still like so different how everything functions um so it's going to be an interesting time to get to know how the hierarchy works when I don't have direct access to the CEO like I'm used to it's Um, different it's very different but I have a I have my own desk this is the first job I've like I had my own desk at the last job but it was kind of in a shared space I was up against everyone so it wasn't my own space I have my own space it's a cubicle but I have a window nearby actually multiple windows nearby so it doesn't feel like it's like stuffy I have two monitors I have a computer from the company I have a phone so I'm like wow I'm spoiled I'm missing out I know like compared it's not much right like for most companies that's what you get when you start a job but this for me is like, wow, <laughs> I've never had this before. Yeah, I was going to say, having been in your last office, it's definitely a big upgrade. Oh my gosh. And having seen pictures of your first office. It's been yeah. wild. How does it feel having an HR department? Oh, it's very, very weird. Um, I mean, like, so I worked briefly at Middlebury College um, when I was really young. Not really young, but like... Just starting to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I had to go through HR there. But again, that was like a small organization. And I knew the people in HR. Like, they all knew my dad. They all knew me. Here, it's so weird because, like, I have to punch in because I'm an hourly um, intern. And then, like, the punch in wasn't working for people. And we had to, like, contact HR. And they had to fix it. And, like, I was like, wow, I've never had to actually contact someone to, like, fix something. I mean, the one that's fixing it um so it's it's very strange and i have to do all of these oh my god i <laughs> i get why we are doing them but i have to do all of these like video tutorials mm, on like trainings. working in the workplace and harassment and racism like they're all very important but i'm like do people like does this actually work on people <laughs> it, it just blows my mind a bit. It depends on the training. Like, I think some of them can actually be really insightful, um, especially for people Mm. that just have never thought about it. Like, we have to do an annual harassment training every year, but it goes in deep into, like, details on, like, what are microaggressions and, like, how do you avoid those and, like, what kinds of comments um, you may normally think funny that maybe make people feel uncomfortable, what kind of signs to look out for if people are feeling uncomfortable, that goes into it a little bit deeper than other harassment trainings I've taken. So I think it just depends on, like, the level of depth. Are they perfect? No. Do people need to do a lot more reading and independent research to understand how to avoid harassment in the workplace? Yes, but they're not the This feels very surface level compared to, I think, what you probably do. Um, It might be because it's, like, the entry kind of thing that they give you when you're first starting the job rather than an annual thing to make sure you're keeping up with it Mm -hmm. um we also had to do a whistleblower one which i thought was very interesting i was like hmm i wonder what these brands are up to that they have to do whistleblower training 
You have to do so. whistleblower training everywhere. It's a public company requirement. Mm, really? Oh, my mm-hmm. God. This is, see, this is wild. I don't know any of this stuff. There are it's SEC. So I'm pretty sure there are SEC rules around making sure that every uh-huh. employee is made aware of whistleblowing protocols. Um, <laughs> because after Enron, people need to be yeah. able to whistleblow. It's like, okay. yeah. Wow. Um, so that was my week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you didn't have to do other, like, crazy compliance trainings or, like, financial crime trainings. Those we have to do every year, and those true. are a lot. A lot, a lot. Yeah, that is very true. Although, I had to do one. I'm in an office job. I do not go anywhere near ha- anywhere near a warehouse. Wow, I can't talk. But I had to take one Health about working at health and safety and like specifically like how to work around a warehouse and chemicals and i was like i'm never gonna step into a warehouse nobody in my department it's it nobody in my department steps in a warehouse like yeah but whatever we did it mandatory (laughs) things they're so crazy it was kind of funny but anyway (laughs) how how has your week gone what are you drinking so i am drinking well what i just finished was a really not my favorite cider. It's called the Haywire Twist. It is a dirty chai cider from uh, Bivouac Cider Works, which is in a state. You are really on a cider kick. Aren't no, you? these I've just had. It's, it's from oh, San it's Diego. Still. Yeah, it's all still from that same cider order, that like one massive cider order oh that God. I did. I haven't, because I haven't had cider. you like a full year. Well, I just, they've been sitting in my fridge. I haven't had cider in. I don't know, like, two, three months, probably, um, since I got the wine. Um, And I've been ordering, like, cocktails and stuff. But now, I didn't like that one. Now I'm drinking a Ace Cider, which is a California cider house. And it is a pink guava cider. It just tastes like guava juice. Oh. And it's really yummy. That actually sounds really good. I'm not going to lie. It's very refreshing. Yeah. And I love guava. summer, Summer cider. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, in terms of life, it's good. Work is busy but manageable, uh, much better than it was a couple of months ago, and I'm just getting ready for the summer. Um, Skyla's school is almost up, so I'm getting ready to send her home for the summertime. Well, on vacation and then eventually home for the summertime, um, figuring how, how to get her enrolled in school, so hopefully I'll be able to do that next week. Fingers crossed. Um, and... Yeah, nothing, nothing crazy. I think I don't know if I told you this last time. Our pool opened, but I don't have a key, so I'm still waiting for my key to get Aww. shipped to me, so we can That'll use be nice the pool. Do get it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but until then, we just are kind of like chilling in the house, hanging out. We finally completed our Marvel movie marathon that we've been doing for like the last two, three weeks. Um, so we watched Endgame earlier today. All we have left is Spider Man, but. But anyway, anyways, yeah, so no, I'm I'm just excited for the summertime, see what's going to happen, finally get a chance to hopefully go out and explore the area a little bit more, and uh, excited to go wine tasting in Sonoma for my birthday soon, and excited to go to Florida soon. Like, I cannot wait to go to Disney. I've missed it a lot. It's weird now, like, as an adult, I don't ever do more than like, six or seven months without a trip to Disney, and now it's been, like, a year and a half, if not more than that, since I last went to Disney, so I've, I've definitely missed it. Excited mm-hmm. to go back soon. But 
the people that we're here to talk about today definitely are not in the most magical place on earth. Nice transition. No, we are not. <laughs> not Poor even Kate and close. Poor Kate and August. So even though neither one of them would say that their lives are poor, but I think they've both been brainwashed by their fathers. Just a little yeah. bit. Just a bit. Just a bit. But we are finally starting our chapter by chapter recap of the Savage Song by Victoria slash V. E. Schwab. Um and we are gonna be talking about the prelude and verse one chapter one today. Now of course this book couldn't make the chapter system easy on us at all. There are I was very confused when I opened the book. I was like, what? It's so confusing. Um, I remember when I was, like, putting together our breakdowns for episodes uh, a week or two ago, and I was, like, writing down, I was like, okay, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, up to, like, chapter 12 or something, and then I was like, I flipped a page, and I was like, oh, no, they start over at chapter one again, but, yeah, so each verse has its own contained chapter system, and there's, like, what, five or six verses or something in the book, so it's, it's, there's a lot of chapter ones, but everything is based off of music, which is an interesting way of breaking down the book structure. I think it's unique. I kind of like it, and I'm kind of annoyed at the same time. You know how much I hate when we have book structures <laughs> within YA books. I hate it yeah, so much. I, know. I get why authors do it, but I just, just tell me the story, like, God. The only book I'll allow it for is The Poppy War. Anything else? Not allowed. <laughs> Maybe Lord of the Rings can get a pass, too. But it's fine. It'll probably make sense to us. I don't remember anything about the book or the verse structure in this book because I read it on Kindle and I just, like, went through it so, so fast when I first read it. So we'll see, um, see what happens. But we'll be talking, yeah, about the, the prelude, which is very long for a prologue. Like, extremely long for a prologue. It's two yeah. chapters <laughs> of story. Um, it was a lot. But prelude in verse one, chapter one. So, Julia, do you want to start diving in to, to the prelude? Yeah. Okay. We begin the prelude from Kate Harker's perspective, which I still cannot get over that name. It's just so boring. The night she burns down the chapel in her boarding school. Just casual stuff. She's tried a few different ways to get punished and expelled, but the nuns wouldn't kick her out, so she decides to do something drastic. She runs at night with various bottles of alcohol to the smaller chapel on their campus. I thought she was just trying to get junk, which, like, good for her, I guess. <laughs> Having pocketed a key from a nun earlier that day. Kate, as she is getting ready, reminisces on her last couple of boarding schools, and we learn she has been blowing through different boarding schools for five years because her father doesn't want her home for some reason. She pours out all the bottles, sets the fire, and sits on a bench outside looking at the lights of nearby de- Oh my gosh, I can't even say this now, and it's supposed to be in a post-apocalyptic world. Des Moines? Des Moines? Des Moines? I'm so sorry to anyone who lives in that city. <laughs> it's Des Moines. Des, Mo- Des Moines. Okay. Uh, but not, not, but not like the Iowa City now. Kate lives, <laughs> Kate lives in Verity, the capital of which is V City, where her father lives, and where there are apparently lots of monsters. 
She has a little bit of an ex existential crisis while lying in the grass and finally hears sirens. Naturally, she gets expelled <laughs> and a cop from Des Moines starts taking her to the capital, though she notes internally that his cop car is not equipped to cross through the waste. Capital W Waste. She drives her, he drives her closer, and we learn that the Waste is a border between V-City and the periphery of Ver Verity, and it is full of monsters. They get further in, and the cop passes her off to another transport vehicle that can cross the Waste, equipped with electric weapons and bright UV lights, where her father calls her. Her father admonishes her, and she tries to stay even keeled with him, letting him know she wants to come home and trying to act like the Kate she thinks she needs to be around him. We move to August, sitting in his family's compound, reading about the Big Bang, looking at the tally marks on his arm, and hearing everything around him. He thinks about the beginning and end of the universe, and his dad, Henry, walks in to chat with him, dressed in an army-style uniform. August tries to propose joining the task force, but his dad, Mom, Emily, who walks in, says no. They tell him it isn't safe, and he tries and fails to stab his hand to prove he can take care of himself. Casual. Naturally. Yep. He is frustrated his older brother, Leo, is allowed to lead the task force, and he has to stand aside to stay safe. Specifically safe from Harker's men, because they don't want him to get caught in the apparent turf wars, which have a fragile truce that is starting to fray. August goes to his room, and we learn that he loves to read nonfiction, has to homeschool himself, and wasn't born, but just popped into existence one day, specifically at a crime scene. His room has a violin also, but he doesn't want to play it. He looks at his 412 body tallies, and he just thinks about the truce and what caused the truce years ago, specifically something called the Phenomenon, capital P. August listens to some classical music and thinks about his birth and the mass number of bodies that were in the middle school when he woke up. August then hears a the phone call between his father and someone else telling him about Kate burning down the school. Henry and Leo have a conversation and Leo convinces Henry to let August help. So when August goes downstairs, a job is waiting for him from Henry. Again, Nothing. most information we've ever gotten in a prologue. It was a lot. Of it was so much. I also supremely apologize for this episode and many future episodes trying to balance plot with the world building information that we it's need because it's not like clearly laid out it's like sprinkled in as part of the conversations that they're having and so it's a balance to try to figure out like how to explain it how not to but ugh. i try you did a great job thank you <laughs> <laughs> i did i did a job let's let's not oversell it okay but Officially starting the book, moving into verse 1, chapter 1, which is all told from the perspective of August. He's trying on his new school uniform, practicing his human expressions in the mirror, and trying to figure out how to introduce his new alter ego, whose name is going to be Freddie Gallagher. And we learn that August apparently cannot tell lies. He can tell untruths, but he cannot tell lies. Uh, Ilsa, his sister, comes into the room and notes that he looks handsome but not happy and is trying to figure out why he isn't excited about this new job. We get some descriptions of Ilsa and she also has counts on her skin, though August tells us her skin is covered in stars instead of something similar to his tally marks. 
She comes to give him a hug of some sort, which makes August a little nervous. The three of them, so Ilsa, August, and Leo, don't usually have a lot of physical contact because it has to do with what August calls the taking. We don't know what that means. Uh, But that doesn't seem to matter between the siblings because they're all the same. Ilsa tells him to be careful, and August narrates that she has a hard time staying focused on the present. Um, She doesn't ever leave the compound and hasn't left the compound since the truce happened six years ago. He goes to his violin, wants to play it again, but snaps the case shut instead. The next morning, he goes downstairs to get his sack lunch, which Emily, his mom, has already taken bites out of, uh, literally bites out of almost everything in the bag, so that August can say he has already eaten when he gets to school. Henry wanders into the kitchen, and August ponders what his dad was like before the phenomenon. We learn all of Henry's original family, his brothers, his parents, and his first wife are dead, that he is some sort of stalwart of the city and the community, and that he's the only one really willing to stand up to fight for V-City. We also are introduced, uh, first introduced to the names of what potentially came out of the phenomenon, the Corsi, Malkai, and Sunai. Just we're pretending I'm saying all of those correctly. Uh, (laughs) Henry, (laughs) yeah, it sounds right. Henry wishes him luck at school and they go over the plan again. So August knows when he should call if something goes wrong. We also learn that North City, which is where August will be heading, is ruled by Harker. South City is ruled by Flynn. And the difference is one half of the city is willing to pay for their safety whereas the other half of the city will fight for their safety so they just have like different ideals around how to deal with the monsters leo comes out to see august off and august tries to mirror his brother's posture but then remembers that doesn't look human leo calls august a sunai so we are made aware that that is the type of monster apparently that they the three of them are Leo throws him a North City medallion, which he needs to wander through North City. It is made of iron, which is uncomfortable for the Sunai, but they can bear it. It actively, however, repels Corsai and Malkai. Leo says it's a good forgery, but not to be caught with it after dark north of the seam. Um, And according to the map, the seam is like the line that divides North City and South City. It may not stand up to the monsters that listen to Harker, as Harker's sigil is the real reason that the medallion offers protection, not necessarily the medal. Leo asks the last time August has eaten, and August says he isn't hungry, which makes Leo chuckle and take August's violin away from him. August panics a little bit because he hasn't left the compound without his violin in years, but he goes out, describes the massive size of the compound, notes that he hasn't left in daylight really ever, as he normally sneaks in and out at night so Harker's spies don't know his identity. Um, They know Leo's, but August is a secret. And he joins the 24 million other people in the city on their commute. His story just now starting, and something else is potentially ending as well. he's very introspective about a lot of things he like has a lot of existential crises in his head yeah he does seem very interesting and yeah so Um, julia tell me your thoughts on the prelude (laughs) i really like kate so far there she i think we talked about this where she does kind of come off like she is this rebellious sort of jude character but without perhaps the 
I don't know. I don't... Jude's brashness. Like, Kate seems like she's probably pretty brash, and I'm guessing makes some mistakes along the way, but it's not, like, dumb mistakes or, like, dumb decisions. Like, everything she's doing, she clearly has a reason for doing it. Um, I just also love, like, rebellious protagonist so much. She's just, like, let me go home. Like, stop sending me to the nuns. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm really enthralled with her so far. I'm excited to see what else we get from her. She seems a bit spoiled, but we can move past that. Um, I wouldn't then... necessarily say spoiled. I think she feels very entitled. Like, she seems very yeah. entitled. Probably. It's hard to tell if she's spoiled yet or not. I don't really know what Harker's given her other than chances. Yeah. Um, and then August. I like August. I think I'm going to like him the most. There's something very quiet about him um, that isn't boring. Like, you can really quickly make a quiet character into a boring character very easily. But I think that what you're saying about him being very introspective makes him interesting because mm-hmm. we get to hear a lot of his thoughts and like I'm guessing we're gonna hear a lot of his ways of like thinking like how he goes about things versus again like going back to Jude who just does stuff and then afterwards we get some thought about it like <laughs> it's very very different um so I think that he is gonna give us a lot of really good um insight into the plot and the the world whereas kate is probably this is me guessing kate is probably going to give us more of the action so they really balance each other so far out but we'll see what happens um i can already see though i had to reread the prelude and verse one chapter one multiple times because i was already lost i was like like tallies like corsi what is going on it's so confusing and then we get like there's some things that we're not completely told like about clearly something with his hunger is very important that we don't know about like what exactly are the tally marks that he was talking about like there's these little mysteries i still appreciate that she's not giving like she's giving us a lot but she's not giving it to us up front so we're Mm -hmm. gonna get to learn about it later on like just remember that it's important which can be hard though when there's clearly a lot of like information that we need to be remembering for later so there is there's a lot of very like world specific things that come into play like at very random points and so it's important to remember names and bodily features like as the tally marks but what i do think is when those things are eventually explained they they are explained in context so it's not like you have to remember the tally marks and put that clue together with something again later on. Like, when they explain what the tally marks mean, they explain it in the context of the tally marks. So it won't be Great. lost on you. Um, Great. <laughs> but it is it can be really frustrating reading this book up front when you don't have all of the answers. Um, which I think, this is why I suggested it, because I think you'll be fine with it. Because you are getting a lot of plot, a lot of action. Like, the story moves at a pretty quick clip. I mean, she literally lit the church on fire. (laughs) 
I'm getting a lot of action right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it moves at a really quick clip, but one of the things that I know turns off a lot of readers from Victoria slash V.E. Schwab is that she doesn't explain her worlds in full until, like, way late in her books, and so it can mm. be really hard to get into them if, um you're not, like, super focused on what's going on at any given point in time. But I think that's why it's a good book to do for the podcast, because, like, as you have questions, raise them, and I can tell you whether it's something that matters or something that we'll find out later or something that you can kind of forget about. So we can kind of parse through those things as they come up. Perfect. The tallies matter. That's what I figured. It seemed like that was, like, like that wasn't just, like, a drop of, like, information. Like, hey, I have some tallies. Like, 412. 412 so specific for no reason. Seemingly tattooed onto his body, but he gets a 412 new one. carrots? 412 music pieces played? I don't know. We don't know. But we know that from when we first meet him, which this kind of goes into chapter one, but we know that from when we first meet him in the prelude to when we talk to him in chapter one, he's gotten six more. Because the count goes from 412 to 418. Yeah, interesting. I will not yet explain what they mean. That will wait till we figure That's it out. That's fine. I can I can live with some mystery. Um, my final thing about the prelude was I love and this is kind of more general, but I love that in like post apocalyptic worlds, there's like two, usually two things that will always like remain from the regular world or the pre world, whatever you want to call it the past world and that's religion and literature like (laughs) we're getting nuns and we're getting t.s Eliot. (laughs) like they have nothing to do technically with this new world but clearly humans uh, they still need something to tether them to the past and i guess t.s Eliot, the big bang nuns they're all they're all still relevant (laughs) well the big bang is more science but yeah i thought that was just funny it happens it comes up in so many YA post-apocalyptic books um which I love and I especially love when they drop in literature just for fun and I'm like you just like that piece of literature there's no other reason why you put it in here other than to say that you love T.S. Eliot (laughs) but I can appreciate it It's it's a good poem that she quotes so yeah that was that was prelude I'm very excited we got we got a lot of stuff so we did. We we really, <laughs> really, really did. The um, oh, the fathers yeah. also. Oh my god, the fathers kind of intimidate me a bit. I'm a little bit worried about them, um, but we're gonna find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like the fathers are definitely intimidating, both of them, but in very different ways. Um, and it it's really interesting to see because we already know based on again, I know verse one but a little bit of the prelude, we know they're on opposite sides of something. Yeah. Which means the two of them represent different ideals, and they are stalwarts of those two ideals, right? So, like, one thing that we can always guarantee of the fathers is the fathers are going to stick to their ideals and be representative of ideals rather than actual people most of the time. Um, so I consider the fathers, like, ideas rather than true people even though they obviously are real humans (laughs) making decisions but eh, they're good literary analogies in a lot of ways um okay i 
really so i took one comment before the prelude at all and that's on the map because you know me and i'm i always want to talk about the maps in books um i really liked how the map in this book is really simple like Mm -hmm. i think if you're new to the world and like trying to figure things out it can be kind of confusing to understand how everything ties together in a dystopian world, but instead of giving you, like, a massive map of, like, verity or, like, all of these different things that are going on that are being described at the beginning, it's just very simple, like, here's a target with some different colors, North City, South City, and a couple of key landmarks that you need. And it's not a big map that you get, like, lost in the details of, like, back alleys and, like, how everything plays together. It's just generic sense of like where things are in relation to one another so it makes it a little bit easier to follow along if you are able to like take that step back and not get lost in the minutia of this book because it's a book you can definitely get lost in the minutia of and when I mean lost I mean like get actually lost not a fun lost but like get confused so I liked that about it it's very sci-fi looking the way that it's drawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it really maps because it's it's a fantasy novel, but not at the same time because of the urban setting, and I think it really maps the urban setting yeah. of the story. Like I could see a, a map similar to this of the capital being in a Hunger Games novel, for example. Hundred percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is I oh I just love dystopian novels. It's so good. And now we've it's officially so confirmed it's based on an old America. So we are officially reading not just an urban fantasy, but also Post a dystopian. <laughs> One fave. of Julia's faves. Oh my god! I Which just you posted on Instagram about how that was really truly how I got into YA was post-apocalyptic books. I was literally Throwback. just about to say that. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I just as I was reading the prelude my heart went out to all the little chapels that you and I have walked in on different college campuses <laughs> over the years I, I was like no don't burn those down they're precious there's a little um it has a name I don't remember what kind of chapel it is but it's a small chapel I don't know if I brought you there um on the campus where my dad works the one where they were playing the little music like in the back you know we went there there. Mm -hmm. okay did i go there with i might have gone there with your mom i don't know if you were there (laughs) where was i i don't know i went to the mailroom with your mom a couple of times without you (laughs) oh maybe she took you then um i was i yeah i was picturing that chapel though like something small exactly old (laughs) and off the beaten path a little bit yeah exactly yeah r.i.p well that so what's funny too is that chapel actually that particular chapel burned down um and then they added a glass roof to it so the foundation was still there but the roof had completely burned off no i remember maybe maybe it's it's from a future time who knows except it's chapel this (laughs) is in iowa not new york but true well it could have i mean if it's from a future time maybe it got moved to new york somehow i don't know <laughs> probably not but no. good good effort i mean all of the, the all of that is just so far-fetched <laughs> i know that's true um <laughs> i i think just not necessarily a comment but just as we keep in mind things about world building 
Um, so it's like, we obviously know this is set in post-apocalyptic America, specifically in the heartland of America. So we're in middle America, literally in Iowa. There was some sort of a reconstruction event, which created new types of districts or cities. But one thing we don't know is if there is more than just Verity yet. Because based on how Kate is describing Verity, it does not seem like it covers all of America. So it'll be interesting to see if that is the only district that survived a la the beginning of Divergent or if they're just one in a swath of like different districts that all have their own problems so we don't know yet or is it gonna is it gonna turn into this Divergent thing where like we get so into the plot and the world that they live in that we don't even think about the rest of the world maybe who knows I don't know. You know, but I, I do know. know I think but I won't answer that it's question. <laughs> but it's a good. It's a good potential thought. We don't know. We'll see. I mean, it based on the map that they give us, it seems like at least this book is going to be very centered in Verity, specifically in V City. Because if it was going to be centered outside of V City, they'd give us a bigger map. True. This is why I like maps for spoilers. Like it doesn't spoil too much, but it just centers you a little bit into what you can yeah. expect. <laughs> Uh, I, like you, find Kate's character really compelling. Like, we don't have any idea why she's doing what she's doing, but I really liked her little freak out in the prelude about who she is in the universe and the choices around her and then how she, like, calms herself down and thinks through all of that. Like, hmm, well, what choice can I make right now that will save the rest of my alternate timeline versions to make their lives better and I'm like what teenager is that like oddly selfish and selfless at the same time (laughs) like that was it was just such a weird existential crisis but like I cannot imagine any other teenager that uses infinite parallel theory to feel better about her shitty choices I don't know if I went to the extent that she did, but I, I definitely, as a kid, I would think about, like, how my actions would affect my actions afterward and, like, the actions of my past. What if I had, what if I had done this? Like, another me is somewhere out there doing this instead. Like, like, if I hadn't quit the soccer team, maybe I wouldn't be riding horses again. Like, those were the things I thought about. Not yeah. on her level, but, like, kind of similar. Well, it's she amazing. She is on, like, a completely different level. She's on a different plane of existence. I... Yeah. But it's amazing how concise Victoria Schwab manages to make that thought process where it's still really impactful to the reader, but it really probably only took, like, what, 150 words as a thought overall. It was, like, so quick and to the point, but it was, I thought, pretty impactful. That's the one thing that made me already start loving Kate as a character was that little Mm -hmm. existential crisis. I also That's a very Ravenclaw thing to do to think through all of that like so precisely. <laughs> That's why you like it. <laughs> I can't help it. I cannot. Um, I love the way that Kate describes the waste, like that feeling of knowing that you're entering a dead place where it's more than just quiet. Like you can feel emptiness. Um, I just think it's super chilling and. Victoria Schwab probably could have done a little bit more to build out that description, but it's not super relevant to the plot right now, so I get why she didn't. But it's what I imagine it must have felt like going to 
um, Hiroshima or Chernobyl or Auschwitz, like, so soon after those events had, like, decimated entire populations, where it's, like, you enter it and you don't just hear quiet, but you feel emptiness, and it adds a sense of, like, fear, but also potentially a sense of, like, weird calm where you know something else is going to come out at you. Um, so I just thought that that was a really interesting, like, way of describing the waste since we have some world life, real world, um, parallels potentially to what that feeling feels like. So I have a question for you based on Kate in the prologue. Do you think, I know you said that you thought she's, like, pretty tough, like, but measured in her toughness, where unlike Jude, she maybe is, has a little bit more thought behind the decisions that she's making. But do you think she is as tough as she is, like, portraying or as she is being portrayed in the first Um, chapter? I do think that she's putting up a front a bit. Um, And I'm guessing just from that conversation with her father, there's something else that we're going to learn about her later on like her relationship with her father why is she doing this why did she want to go home like clearly there's a reason that she's not comfortable being at this boarding school and like desperately wants to go home and like that's a show of vulnerability right there we just don't know what it is yet Mm -hmm. so i'm excited to learn yep no that's fair um i forgot how much i adore kind of to what you were saying and like going back to the introspective piece i forgot how much i adore the way august's brain works like it almost feels like (laughs) him and maybe not leo but like him and ilsa both have like add or adhd like some kind of (laughs) deficit disorder and how they pay attention to things but I love hearing them think. Like, he goes into these tangents of spontaneous thought, but they're interesting. Like, they're very compelling tangents. Like, kind of, I know you're talking about T.S. Eliot, but, like, going from the Big Bang to the T.S. Eliot poem and then talking about the connections between the beginning of the world and the end of the world and then shifting into thinking about the foundation of human faces and like how human faces mold emotions into like showcasing how you're feeling when faces are just slightly readjusted and how he can potentially like mirror that it's just it's such interesting brain thoughts that I feel like most humans don't have and I love reading about it it's just so interesting even if it has nothing to do with the plot I don't care I just want to get lost in August's brain for like hours yeah. I mean, I have ADD. I am probably not, like, high level, but I wish I thought, like, August. I think it's more for him. He just has a very active mind, mm-hmm. and he clearly has spent a lot of time inside. Yes. <laughs> so he's he's probably had to build up this world inside his mind that is much more interesting. Um, so it is, it is interesting to hear his thought lines. Yeah. His thought line. Well, yeah, his brain is always moving, but he's doing very interesting things with those movement movements. He's going trying on to an adventure with mm-hmm. very little, and he builds connections. Like that's what I find. I think the most compelling is he builds connections between all of these di- all of these disparate thoughts in his brains, mm-hmm. in his brain. <laughs> no, he is multiple <laughs> in his brain. Um, and it's just interesting. That's why like... he's so smart. <laughs> He's like Doctor Who. He has two brains, like a Doctor Multiple Who has two brains. hearts. Yeah. <laughs> um. Let's see. Or an elephant with wait no, it's an elephant a cow with two stomachs. There we go. <laughs> Don't they have like four stomachs? Yeah, they do. 
<laughs> you think I would know that, but... <laughs> I don't. Uh, who cares? Um, I grew up with cows. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> I just want to reiterate how much easier it is to read this book a second time now that I'm not completely lost. I bet. Uh, because it... And I think the reason for it is because it feels like even though it's the start of Kate and August's story together or like how they're going to be interacting, we are being thrown into the middle of a story, right? Like we're being thrown into the middle of some kind of a turf war. We're being thrown into the middle of a world with monsters. We don't get an origin story for any of this stuff and we don't get an origin story for Kate and we don't get an origin story for August. So... It's really hard to, like, pick up on what's actually going on and, like, character motivations when you're thrown into the middle of a story that you don't have the origins for. And we get them later in the book, but it's challenging, and so I feel for you, and I'm just really glad it doesn't have to be me being super confused. I'm so sorry. Love you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I actually have a question for when we get into verse one, chapter one. Because okay. I was like, did I miss a... Like, this is my worry now. Is like, am I missing little bits of information? Or has she just not given it to us yet? And I will um, parse it out. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it'll, it'll be a balancing act, but I will parse it out. Uh, the last comment I have for the prelude, uh, just in general, and this is a comment I will have for the entire book... I want to spend more time with Ilsa and less time with Leo. Just, like, period. Ilsa seems nice. Ilsa seems interesting. I want to understand... August makes this comment in the prelude about how it can be hard to talk to her unless um, her brain is thinking in columns, but most of the time her brain is in knots. And I just want to, like, dive into that more with her character. Like, what is she like when her brain is in knots? What is she like when her brain is in columns? How does that affect her interactions with her siblings and with the world around her? I just think it's super interesting. So, more Elsa, mm-hmm. Less Leo. I don't like Leo. He can go suck he, it. He kind of scares me a bit. He freaks me. I think it was out. the minute that he was compared to, like, a god, I think. August was saying everyone thinks of him as a god in mm-hmm. his ranks. I was like, okay, yeah, I already don't like him. <laughs> the minute any author compares a character to a god, I'm, I'm Run. <laughs> yeah. Run away. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, but yeah, that's that's all I had for the prelude. So we can get into ch- chapter one. Verse one, chapter one. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask my question because I don't know if she said this and I just completely missed it. But do we know? So we know that clearly um august's father or whatever he is um knows who kate is i Mm -hmm. understood that much and leo knows who kate is Mm -hmm. i'm guessing august knows who kate is right or no i think he generically knows who kate is just like kate's father generically knows who august is but they don't like know each other okay because remember, um, and th- I think the timing of this is really important, Kate has not been in V-City in the last five years. August is five years old. Because okay. oh he was born. So weird. <laughs> yeah. I know, but he was born <laughs> after the truce. Okay. Um, 
do we have an actual so but he so he's five years old this is what where i'm confused like he's five mm-hmm. years old but he's not five years old okay yeah so <laughs> think of it and i can't say too much because then it'll divulge yeah. some details that we'll re- okay we'll reveal later but think of it kind of like when the sunai are born Mm-hmm. they're born as is. So, like, he was bo- born, formed, maybe is a better word of saying it, five years ago, and that's when his being came into consciousness, and his being came into consciousness at this middle school, where something had happened and there were a lot of body bags. We don't know any of the details of that yet, but we know that that in some way somehow was a catalyst for august's coming into being and he came into being as he was he gets older a little bit but like he basically came into being as an as an adult but like an adult teenager um whereas like his older siblings who have been around a little bit longer have a little bit more adult perspective because they're older got it okay is he ever told with this whole Freddie Gallagher? He, I know he gets this Freddie Gallagher persona. Weird mm-hmm. name. Whatever. I'm going to move past it. Um, <laughs> I would like to talk to Victoria Schwab about her name choices, but it's fine. Um, does he ever get told, like, why he is doing this? I feel like he never has the conversation. Like, we don't hear it. Yeah, it happens off screen um oh my gosh so (laughs) right i know it's basically so at at the end of the prelude they have a conversation or he overhears the conversation Mm -hmm. about kate even though her name is not used but about her setting fire to the school and that she's coming back and then they start prepping him for his mission we don't have all of the details of what that mission is yet, but we know he's going to be going to some kind of a school on the north side. So, presumably, okay. that has something to do with the news that Hart, or that Flynn got that Kate was coming back to V-City. Got it. Okay. Interesting. I don't know if I like that. Like, I like to hear the conversations for bigger plot points like that but it's it's frustrating because like this book is definitely it's told from third person but it's told from first person or from third person limited yeah um so you are really only going to get the perspective that the characters have and not all of the perspective that the characters have It, it can get frustrating at times that's why i like when i first read this book i was so lost because it felt like not everything was being explained but a lot of times that is purposeful on Victoria Schwab's part because she wants certain plot points to become, like, big moments or surprises. So I imagine – I don't remember the details, but I imagine um, it's to make it more impactful when August and Kate meet for the first time. So it reads more like a film script than a, a classic book kind of structure, which is interesting. Yeah, okay. this would be it's great for a TV show, to. like a limited yeah. series TV show. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, okay, Victoria, I will try it out. Um, I was really curious about her naming styles for Corsai Mal- 
Kai and Sunai. Mm-hmm. And so I tried looking it up because it seems, I don't know, like Latin or something. I found very little. So what I came out with was Corsi in Latin, of course, means heart. Mal, well, core, not sai. And then mal means evil. And I couldn't find anything for su or sun. I'm not a Latin expert, so I don't know any of this. And I don't know what I would mean if it's... So I'm wondering if maybe it's not Latin, but then core and mal make sense. Like heart, maybe something to do with the heart, and mal, maybe something very evil. But... I don't know. I, I does she explain her like the the, the naming convention? Like, does, yeah. Well, not the naming convention exactly, but when we get to know the monsters more, does it kind of make more sense? No. No. Okay. God. Maybe I should write to her and be like, "Hey, I love naming conventions. Please divulge me." I don't think she puts as much thought into names as you would want. Oh, darn it. I'm sorry. Um, sh- yeah, I don't think she's that clever with her naming conventions. I-, I think she just thought they were cool sounding names. What I will say is it's maybe something that we can revisit once we know a little bit more about each of the monster classes and, like, what is indicative of each monster class, and then maybe we can talk through why the names are what they are. Okay. Because, like, that's the one thing, J.K. Rowling, for all her faults, does a really good job with naming everything. And I'm, like, spoiled by that. And now every time these names come up, I'm like, okay, what does it mean? Uh, Well, that's why Harry Potter is, like, a piece of literature that actually, in a lot of ways, even though it was written for kids, feels like it could actually be a piece of literature. This is not a piece of literature. No. (laughs) Harry Potter is for both kids and adults, because as an adult, you have so much more to, like, read into. It's fascinating. Because we tried anyway, to do the same thing with The Cruel Prince, and we didn't really we did. get anywhere. Well, she had some good inserts. They weren't in the same way that Harry Potter is, where it's, like, this massive connection, like, really well-placed naming conventions, but she did do a good job of, like, dropping hints and stuff um, which I appreciated this yeah but I think like... a lot of it was like fairy hints tied to fairy yeah. lore rather than like yeah. coming up with names that meant things like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what Valerian or Nikasia or Locke <laughs> were named none of that matters Taryn and Jude whatever Carden yeah. that means nothing I know we went into Greenbrier and we got a little bit there but like it's not the most like impeccable naming convention and <laughs> well i yeah i appreciated the queen mab reference yes but, like i i like shakespeare so that's like my thing it's like yeah let's do it <laughs> but it was the same with the the concealed and the revealed like there's not too much from a naming perspective no. we just <laughs> that, that was nothing <laughs> we just need to get used to the fact that like why authors don't actually put that much thought into that on a typical that is true they go more for like impact with names than they do with meaning which Mm -hmm. is too bad but yeah it's okay we're here for the plot and the characters more than you know a whole literary analysis yeah blah 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 yeah (laughs) 
It's fine. <laughs> that we are. Okay, but we can still revisit what the meaning of the different names are and, like, the differences between the monster classes once we know more about them, which honestly probably won't happen until, like, the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was the whole medallion thing. So the monsters, except for Sunai, are basically turned off by metal I guess is what I'm I'm taking from it, um, and Sunai just doesn't like it. I mean, they're but, still repulsed by it, but it won't like injure them, and they can touch it. Do we like? Is there like something in the history of how this world came to be that like gives reason for that, or is it just like their Achilles heel and there's no apparent reason? It's just, you know. That's a good question. From what I remember, I think it's just more like Achilles' heel. Like, trying to give the monsters a weakness. Okay. In the same way that vampires and werewolves canonically have weaknesses. Interesting. It's interesting, interesting that she picks iron. Like, that she focuses on, like, fey yeah. weaknesses. Oh, mm-hmm. actually, or demon, because demons are typically repulsed by iron. Because they are demons. They're monsters. <laughs> iron yep. is very, like, iron is everywhere, though, so it, yeah, it makes it really, must make it hard to find material. <laughs> but, okay. Well, but it has to be pure, I think the thing is, it has to be pure, pure iron, iron is what repulses okay. them. Like, if it's an alloy, it's not as bad. That's okay. why they have okay. alloys in their suits. Okay. I want to know what, and I know we're going to get this later, but I really want to know what is up with August's eating habits. Like, what does a monster eat? Why is Leo worried about the fact that he hasn't eaten? Why is August not worried about it? Why does he rely on his violin? Does the violin have anything to do with his eating habits? Like, is it the sort of thing where, like, he gets super hangry and reaches for his violin and just kills a bunch of people with his violin because he's hangry? I don't know. I'm very excited to learn about that. That made me very, very interested. Um, I really like Emily so far. Uh, Do you have a specific prediction on the eating thing? On the eating thing? Um, I don't know. I It's so hard because, like, my immediate thought went to, like, a vampire drinking blood. But, like, I'm highly doubtful that it's, like, a vampire situation where he's going to suck someone's blood. It, it's probably more interesting, I hope, than that. More creative. Um, yeah, I honestly, like, I have no idea. It's clearly not human food because we have Emily, who, as I just said, I really like her because she took the, the bites out of the food to, like, help him to come up with an excuse because I'm guessing he can probably eat human food, but he just doesn't like it. Um kind of like Jude eating fairy food. Well, she likes fairy food, but just in the wrong way. We are keen to stop making Cruel Prince references in the normal commentary. (laughs) It's on my mind and I'm about to like reread the third book. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm gonna wait until we do it for the pod. It'll be fine. Okay. (laughs) We'll do it soon. Sooner than later. Yeah. Um, no, I, like, I'm really trying to think this through. Like, what would I predict that he eats? But it's, 
it's hard like does it have something to do with music does he like consume music somehow i don't know um maybe he does feast on the flesh of humans and that's why his brother's worried like maybe he's gonna consume humans at this school if he gets hungry i don't know um do we get a hint in this chapter at all like is there anything i could pull from um i would say the only thing you get a hint for well yes you get hints but the hints won't manifest into anything until like you actually see him eat and like fully understand the process um but i will say that i think the the most important hint is that Leo takes his violin away from him. Yeah, I got that much, but that's Which all I makes got. him scared. I also think that it's kind of clear and maybe I'm I'm wrong, but like there's controlled eating and then there's uncontrolled eating. And mm-hmm. I think what Leo's worried about is the uncontrolled eating versus the controlled eating. And August is also worried about that, but from, like, a different perspective. And it isn't made clear which one is, like, correct. And also, like, how what the impetus for uncontrolled eating may or may not be. Um, so, more to come, for sure. Okay. But it is more interesting than drinking blood. I do promise that. I know. I keep saying interesting to this podcast, but, like, it is all really interesting. Because it... it I like when... Um, we kind of get to guess a lot. I know you don't like that. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's just fun. Like, just sitting here being like, what does he eat? I don't know. Um, and trying to figure out, like, have we been given clues and all this stuff? Um, yeah. There's a lot of clues. She doesn't, like, hit you over the head with things, but there are some things that are very obvious that, like, once you read it again, you'll be like, oh. oh. <laughs> got it (laughs) um yeah I think that that's definitely again it doesn't like some of the things that just about his his monster self that don't hit you over the head but I like the way that Victoria Schwab introduces things so like the lying for example right where he's like trying to have a conversation with himself and like practice and he's like my name is Freddie Gallagher and then he explains that, like, he can say that because it's not a lie because he doesn't actually have a name. And so any name could be his name if he feels like it's his name. But then he tries to say, I'm not a monster, and he hasn't found a way to make that true. So it would be a lie for him to say it, and he can't vocalize it. Okay. So it's like a little bit of world building, but you almost don't even realize that it's world building. And I really like the way that she does that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice. Um, I also want to add, I just looked this up, 24 million people in the city, which is supposed to be what, Des Moines? Des Moines? Des Moines? Des Moines? No, Des Moines has 1 million people. So all of the oh. sub-cities on the periphery have 1 million or less. The city in the middle, which it's is the capital, is 24 million. It's a okay. su- what's called a super well, city. It still stands. Des Moines right now has 215,000 people. <laughs> Compared to 1 million. New York City population is 8.4 million. So that is a super city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. I wonder what that looks like for a morning commute. I already hate the morning commute where I am, and there's not that many people. So, 
Have fun, August. <laughs> we'll see how it goes for him in the next chapter. Um, yeah. The whole Ilsa stuff, as we were talking about before, I, I agree. I think that she's really a nice character. Um, the way that, I don't remember if it was this chapter or the prelude, um, but the way that she was described as kind of like, not zoning out necessarily, but that's kind of how I took it as when she kind of like short circuits and like, I think she was like nodding her head and she kept nodding her head. I thought that was such an interesting little detail to add and I kind of appreciated it because it is clear like, it, it's akin to having a disorder basically where like, um, especially like with people who have a very intense ADD or ADHD, you'll have these like, um, moments where you're kind of just, again, like, not zoned out, but you're, like, repeating yourself, where you're, like, you have to, like, repeat something to yourself multiple times to get it through your head, and it's just very interesting. Um, so I appreciated that little detail that she added. Um, I like when authors don't shy away from, like, little issues like that. Like, I'm sure it has something more to do with her being a monster than it does with her having, like, a mental disorder, but, um, it's still like a little nod that I think is is good. I think it might be a little bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. And it, we'll get a lot more on Elsa's character later on. But, like, Leo is clearly not the same way. He's a god. <laughs> I know. I but, really hate that. <laughs> but August also uh, isn't quite the same way. Like, he can be really introspective okay. and get lost in tangents. But he can focus better if he mm -hmm. needs to focus. Like, he can snap himself out of a reverie. Ilsa is a little bit more lost, I would say. And I think that that's something that is unique to Ilsa, not something specific to their class of monsters. Um, okay. But it's, har it, it's hard because we only know three monsters so far that are Sunai. <laughs> so it's, like, it's hard to tell if it's a personality thing or a, like, mm -hmm. monster classification thing um but i think it is a little bit more on the personality thing like specific to elsa and her history okay which we don't know so okay um i think that was all i had for chapter one what what's your thoughts reading it over again um so i just was thinking about it again like Sending in someone who can't lie as a spy at a high school, horrible idea, recipe for disaster, and I love it. Well, yeah, I was gonna say, that's, but like, that's exactly how we get the plot going, come on! It's gonna blow up in their faces, and I cannot wait. Oh god, it's gonna be so yeah, good. they didn't think um, this through, did they? No, they did not, not one bit. <laughs> I can't wait until we officially, like, learn more about all the different characters, because it feels just, and I was kind of saying this, but, like, it feels weird reading it and knowing all the things I know about them now. Like, it feels weird okay. to read Elsa and Leo knowing their backstories mm -hmm. and having to, like, put myself back into, like, not knowing their backstories. Like, it's just, it's a little bit more challenging, and so I'm really interested as we kind of, like, go through into seeing how your perceptions and, like, understanding of the different characters, particularly the three Sunai, change. Um, 
because I think that they have very interesting, not, I, I don't want to say character development, but like ziggy zaggy arcs, which can be really interesting to like follow along with as a reader. So I'm just going to be interested to see how your perceptions of them change over time. Um, and I just, <laughs> it's much easier to know all the stuff about the monsters on reread. I cannot reiterate that much that enough like how much clearer it is to understand things about like why the Corsai and the Malkai react so negatively to iron but the Sunai don't um and like having the context for the world okay <laughs> it comes it comes all within the first book yeah. right like by the end of the first book I understood everything I still haven't read the second book which I probably should but um I I'm excited for you to get the answers because then it'll make it so much easier to talk about everything. <laughs> Fair. Uh, and then I just, the last comment I had for chapter one, I didn't have that much for chapter one, but I liked how Schwab tied the um, idea from August's section of the prologue about like the Big Bang and the T.S. Eliot poem and like it ending with a, not with a bang with, with a whimper with whatever the words no. are not with a whimper with a bang yeah um that's correct how she tied <laughs> like that beginning to end commentary that august had in the first in the prelude back to verse one when he's like getting ready to go out into the world and thinks that to himself and it's kind of like the beginning and the end for him of a certain section of his story and it's just one of the things that i really appreciate about victoria's um, Schwab's writing style. She's, again, not always the best with, like, consistent and clear world building and, like, giving you the information you need when I think you need it, personally. But she has these really clever little writing things that she does that still makes her one of my favorite authors with, like, how she ties things back together and how lyrical her writing can be in places. Um, which is why I really appreciate her and why I'm excited to be reading this book again. So, just makes the story a little bit richer, even if you have no idea what's going on. At least you know that it's pretty when you're reading it. <laughs> True. I'm reading The Secret History again. I think I mentioned that um, by Donna mm -hmm. Tartt. And she, I know Victoria always says in a lot of interviews, that, or at least one interview that I read, um, <laughs> that she... Um, wishes she had written that book and so i'm interested to while i'm reading the secret history alongside this book to see if like mm. she's taking any cues from that like if her writing style has kind of been influenced at all by donatar i think that would be really interesting um because donatar has a very i don't say flowery way of writing but definitely a very like i don't know like i want to say melodic way of writing um it's very interesting it's a certain style of writing which i think Victoria would probably take on if she really idolizes Donna. I think it would be interesting to hear your perspective on how much of Donna Tart you see mirrored. I haven't read Donna Tart. I haven't read The Secret History, but how much you see mirrored in the V.E. Schwab books rather than her YA stuff. Because mm, I think true. her YA is a little bit less melodical. I mean, I, this, this book is literally all about <laughs> melodies, is, yeah. <laughs> but it's a little bit more toned, a little bit more toned down, a little bit more plot focused 
Um, okay. Granted, I haven't read her YA or her her adult um, like fantasy series. I haven't read the Vicious Duology, and I haven't read Darker Shades of Magic yet. Um, but I have read Addie Larue, The Invisible Life of Addie Larue, and that is probably one, probably the most like lyrical and melodious book I've ever read in my entire life. It was just beautiful, flowery, flowing from start to finish. Was there a huge plot in the, like, 400 pages of that book? No. Did I just completely enjoy the journey that I went on because of how beautiful the writing was? Yes. It's what I want Charles Dickens to be. <laughs> Basically. Poor Charles Dickens. What do you have against, against uh, what do you have against him? Too many words <laughs> that aren't saying anything. I just love Charles Dickens. It, I would read I read so many Charles Dickens book books in middle school. I don't know why. Literally like what is it, Forty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea or whatever it's called. Like I used to know that cover to cover. That why? was not Dickens. Know. Oh my god, no. Um the, the the Christmas one is the Dickens one that I knew cover to cover. A Christmas Carol? Yes. Oh, well and that's then, short. No, he did um he did the book. What was it called? Wait, why are you bringing up Dickens? Hold on, let's go back. Yeah, he did David Copperfield. Wait, go oh. back to Charles Dickens. Why are you bringing him up right now? Uh, because I'm thinking of people that have a lot of words, but don't say a lot. And, like, uh, Addie LaRue has a lot mm-hmm. of words and doesn't really have a lot of plot, but it's beautiful. Like, I loved the journey that I went on, and that's what I wish I felt when I read Dickens, because he has a lot of words, but I don't feel like a lot gets said. Hmm. That's Tale of Two Cities. Maybe it's my own fault. I've only really, like, deep-dived into Great Expectations, and that book is way too long No one likes Great Expectations, first of all. They keep remaking that as a movie, and I'm like, who on earth is going to watch this movie? It's the most boring book in the world. Like, that I can understand. Also, all the characters are horrible. They're all bad Um, people. Like, I just can't. Mm. Oliver Twist is okay. Tale of Two Cities. Oliver Twist, Tale of Two Cities... I haven't read Oliver Twist, but I was in the stage play, so I think that that basically counts. <laughs> and I love the Disney adaptation with cats. With cats? What? Oliver and Company? I've never seen that before. Oh my god, you need to watch it with your mom. Like, half of the soundtrack is Billy Joel. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's a little musical, okay. animated musical, with about a little um, orphaned cat named Oliver who goes to New York City and gets taken in by a ragtag band of stray dogs, and they just look out for him. Oh my god. <laughs> and it's based on Oliver Twist. <laughs> I just looked this up. This is hilarious. Oh my god. Okay. Time to well... Plus. <laughs> Oh, look, and I also just looked up 20,000 Leagues on the Sea. It's not 40,000. Jules Verne. It's, it's Jules, Jules Verne. Verne. Yeah. I also knew that cover to cover. Because he also funny. wrote Journey to the Center of the Earth. Also a good book. Not for me. Those, let's be real. Those are not my books. I had, I peaked in middle school with books. <laughs> I, like, burnt out after that. I, I would say I peaked in, like, high school with classics, um, and then they made me read Heart of Darkness, and I was like, anyone who likes classics and includes this as a classic is wrong, and they have a wrong opinion, and I refuse to read anymore, and then I just gave up on classics. Mine was Othello, 
I didn't even have to read it. And I, but everyone, because I wasn't taking AP English, but all of my friends were taking AP English. And they were all, so I was like, I'm going to read all the books that you're reading. Like, it didn't, it made no sense. Like, why wouldn't I just take AP English at that point? Because you're you, Julia. (laughs) I know. Um, I, I hated English class. Um, so I picked up Othello because all of my friends were reading Othello and I was like, nope. And that was the end of my reading. <laughs> like big books like that. I've never read Othello. Thankfully we didn't have to read it. We only had to read Macbeth and Hamlet in high school. It's funny because that's, I think the only Shakespeare book that I don't like. And it's because it's so boring. At Do you least like the history like Hamlet? No, actually, you're right. No, I don't. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> At least with his main, I guess you could say mainstream books, they have good plot. Everything else is just so... The comedies bold. and the the dramas are good. I agree. It's just the histories yeah. that are like, bleh. Um, so, pop culture. Julia, do you have anything for the prelude? I do. Um, okay, this is like... My first one's going to be terrible. My pop culture reference was, have you ever seen the movie Wild Child with um, Emma Roberts? I feel like a long time ago. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's getting old now. She goes, she acts up and her father sends her to a boarding school in England to basically reform her. Um, and so she wants to do everything in her power to go back home to California because she hates it in England. It's rainy, it's cold, she doesn't like any of the people. Um, so she does all of these tricks to try and get, um, dismissed, but nothing's working. And then at the very end, the, I think it's the dormitories light on fire. And so it was, and it's lit on fire by, I'm like, spoiler, I guess. (laughs) It's lit on fire by a, um, lighter that is hers and like, it's recognized as hers. Mm -hmm. But thankfully for her, unlike well, like, I don't know, thankfully. At that point, she doesn't want to leave. But, so thankfully for her, I'm like, hey, it turns out in the end that it wasn't her who lit the fire, so she doesn't have to get dismissed and she can continue life as is. For Kate, at least she gets out, because it actually was her lighting the fire and she right. did want to leave. Um, but it just reminded me so much of that. <laughs> of a wild child who just wants to leave. She wants to go back to her sunny life in California. <laughs> Her comfortable I get it. lifestyle. I get it. It's fair. Um, <laughs> the um, other one that I had was the waste. Same thing as Howl's Moving Castle. I don't. Mm. It's been a long time since I read the book, so I don't remember how it's explained in the book. But um, in the movie, we don't. It, I know it's explained more in the book, but in the movie, we don't get a whole lot of explanation for the waste. We just know that it exists. And that there is a witch of the waste. And that there is this wasteland where nobody lives. Um, I, I want to now go back and read the book and find out um, if, if it's at all similar. Because uh, I just thought that was an interesting parallel. I haven't and read then... the book, so I can't offer any suggestions. But it's on my TBR. <laughs> I have a version of it on my Kindle. It's, it's yeah, it's, I didn't really enjoy reading the book. I definitely kind of prefer, in that the case, the movie. Yeah. Because it all works so well. Like, the animation, the music, 
it's beautifully well, done. I feel like anything Miyazaki is like you're always gonna prefer. It's incredible. The movie yeah. because it's just so impeccable. Like you can't do bad Miyazaki movie. Like there's yeah. just not a bad one. They're all amazing. And you get Christian Bale's voice in the English version, so that's true. <laughs> Where can you go wrong? <laughs> Um, and then my last one for this was, um, I mentioned it in the introduction podcast episode, but I'm going to bring it up again. It reminds me a bit of Legend by Murray Lou, where you have this girl and this boy, although in this case, August is like clearly a higher up individual than the boy in that book, Day who is considered to be a criminal because he has caused issues. Maybe August has caused issues too, and we don't know. I don't know. Um, We'll find out, I guess. Maybe he is like Day. Uh, And then you have June, who is his rival and has been brought up to be this prodigy child and looks up to her father and just, like, wants to prove that she is this incredible child who can hold her own, essentially, and Mm -hmm. has to go after Day. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he's a criminal, quote-unquote. Um, I'm not going to say more about the book, but it's a great book. Everyone should read it. <laughs> um, also, while I was checking it, because it's been a long time since I read that book, while I was checking on it, I did not know this. It must be a 10-year-old book by now. But apparently, Murray Lou, fun fact, was inspired by Les Mis. <laughs> and Jean Valjean and... Um, Whatever his name is, the police officer or whatever, who goes after Jean Valjean. Yes. And that's the dynamic that she was going for with June and Day. (laughs) It's literally like a lamest fan fiction between them. That's amazing. Um, There is nothing better than that. I thought that was great. And that's so funny. Oh, my God. Uh, I haven't read Legend I actually haven't read a Marie Lou book ever. Um, again, I own Sky Hunter, so I at least have one of her books on my Kindle TBR, but she's definitely an author I need to spend some time digging into at some point because I've only heard yeah. wonderful things. I like Legend the most out of her books. I think that she kind of hasn't quite reached that level of legend yet. <laughs> Fair. Pun. everyone has a point in their career that's like the best one you know like that's fair i've heard a lot of people say strong i've heard a lot of people say that the young elites are one of their favorite series by marie lou have you read those i haven't read it that came out what two years ago i think again don't follow her career whatsoever have not read one of her books but i see it on tiktok a lot by some people whose opinions i trust so (laughs) anyways that was a long tangent um do you have any other prelude pop culture not for prelude no i don't okay uh i have a few (laughs) okay okay so firstly kate was cracking me up with how violent she thinks she's being and trying to (laughs) break out of all of the other boarding schools where she's like gonna fight and broken nose and like all of this stuff like she's not she doesn't appear like she's actually a deviant child but that she will scare other people into thinking she's a deviant child and she reminded me so much of rosa diaz from brooklyn 99 but like when rosa talks about when she was like training to be a ballerina and like in high school (laughs) 
Rosa Diaz, though, I feel like would not, like, just from the get-go, I feel like they would not get along, her and Kate, but yeah, I think that is really funny. 100% they would not, um, unless they got into a very weird, like, again, sapphic situation, which I'd be fully supportive of. Like, I could see them having a really great enemies to lovers situation happening. Would be fun. It's true. Never gonna happen, but it could be (laughs) The crossover to end all crossovers. Oh my god, someone write it on AO3, please, and then send it to me. Um, okay, but I just, I, I enjoyed that. And then, this is very minor, but Kate makes a reference when she's talking about, like, lighting the church on fire to, like, it happening during the witching hour, which is obviously comes up in a lot of different pieces of literature and books and stuff, but without fail, any time someone says the witching hour, my brain, do you know where my brain goes, Julia? The witcher? No. Oh, no, I don't. The BFG. Oh my god. Every time. <laughs> I would not have guessed that, but okay. <laughs> without fail. Because the little girl, I think her name's Sophie, but I don't remember, um... But the BFG takes her at the witching hour, and that's when all of the giants come out to, like, steal the kids. And the the specific timing of the witching hour was so important to that book, and I read that book probably, like, 20 times when I was a kid. It was one oh my of my God. favorite books. And so now every time someone mention, mentions the witching hour, I'm just, like, immediately thrown back into, like, my childhood bed with my paper copy of the BFG open on my lap reading about her going on a journey with the giants. That's <laughs> nothing to do with this book, but it just, it warms my your heart. Your brain is so funny sometimes. I'm like, you're like, can you guess? I was like, the witcher? <laughs> I never would have thought BFG. <laughs> oh god, yeah. I read that book a lot. It was my favorite Roald Dahl book. Oh, so man. good. Roald Dahl, it's been a long time since I've read any Roald Dahl. Yeah. It's been... The Witches been. was supposed to come out as a movie. Did it ever come out? I think it did, but movie. on a streaming service. Oh, okay. I don't know. Anne Hathaway's in it, I guess. Right? Yeah, and Stanley Tucci, the most important player. <laughs> He's in every movie. He's in every movie ever made, I swear. I don't know how he so does funny. it with his schedule. I love Stanley Tucci. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it came out, but I don't remember details about it. Um, anyway, sorry. Anyways, that's okay. The So the idea of, like, having this phenomenon event, the reconstruction, everything with, like, the truce and all of this stuff and, like... Mm-hmm. The sectioning off of everything. I was just getting, like, especially with Kate's dad, was getting hardcore Shatter Me vibes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because he seems, like, so intense. Not nearly as intense as Aaron's dad, but, like, still pretty intense. And this, like, need to please her father was... She doesn't necessarily necessarily seem to like her father, but she feels this, like, incessant need to please him. And I was 
just getting Warner. a lot of Shatter Me vibes with, like, Warner, and I'm, I think it'll be I'm interesting like to draw some parallels between her and Warner as the book goes on, because they're set in, like, that very standard, like, dystopian, um, post-apocalyptic American society. I like so. that comparison a lot. That makes me feel good. <laughs> You're like, I got you to read these books. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, okay. The existential crisis she has about the multiverse and infinite parallels with divergent timelines is the entire plot of Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, which I don't read sci-fi, as you know. It is just, like, not my genre. But I read that one, and I, I love that book. I should probably reread it soon. Blake Crouch is, like, a master sci-fi writer. He Everyone loves everything that he writes. Um, but... It follows a guy who ends up getting stuck through, like, all of these different infinite parallels and, like, sees himself in all of these different infinite parallels. And it's such a trippy book, but it's so interesting. So if anyone needs a good sci-fi book to read, Dark Matter by Blake Crouch is a great choice. Yes. Uh, the idea of having the subsidies that are, like, very controlled, but nobody lives outside of the subsidies... Right? So it's like you have these like mm -hmm. pockets of cities and then you have to kind of travel from city to city. Reminded me a little bit of The Chosen Ones by Veronica Roth, which is the book that I read when I was staying with you guys last summer. Um, <laughs> because they have similar city vibes in the like alternate universe that they go to in that book where you have to like check in and check out of the cities and everything's very self-contained. It also reminds me of another book dystopian novel that I cannot for the life of me remember the name of and I'm really struggling it's I feel like it's a Margaret Atwood book but I don't remember if I'm like thinking of The Handmaid's Tale or if I'm thinking of Oryx and Crake or if I'm thinking of something completely different. But there's another book that Im invokes a very similar thing where, like, everything's very contained within the cities. And if you live on the outskirts, like, you're not safe at all. Um, I need to reread the universe of Margaret Atwood. She's such a talented author, but her books make me so sad. <laughs> uh, the This is going to be a random Harry Potter reference, so bear with me, please. Um I understand that the way that Harker's voice is described is not at all similar to Snape's voice, but the fear and respect that his, like, quiet, even voice commands from Kate reminds me a lot of how Harry described Snape in their very first potions <laughs> class when he is, like, talking very quietly, but everyone in the com in the class has, like, rapt attention to Snape because they're so worried of, like, stepping a toe out of line. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> random. It is pretty random. <laughs> but that's okay. You know me. I love my Harry Potter references. Well, there is an intimidation method of, like, speaking very softly mm -hmm. and very punk like like very almost like a staccato kind of mm -hmm. way uh, rhythmically yeah. yeah exactly um, yeah that so just like the vibe of it felt very similar um the tallies on august's skin and this is not a this does not do the same thing that the character i'm saying does so this is not a spoiler for the mm -hmm. tallies but 
just the way it's described. The tallies on August's skin remind me of um, Killmonger's scars in Black Panther. Did you see the Black Panther movie? <laughs> yeah. Because he has all those, like, little lines, like, dots yeah. all over his entire body. And so just, like, the sheer volume of it reminds me a lot of the tallies. Um, just from a visual perspective, even though we obviously don't know what August tallies are for yet, it also reminds me a little bit of, again, not in any way from a plot perspective, but just the idea of having tallies on your skin reminds me of The Silence from Doctor Who. I don't know if you ever watched those episodes, but, like, yeah. the silence can only be... You only know that you're talking to the silence when you're actually perceiving them, and when you're not perceiving them, you forget that you interacted with them. So they would keep tallies on their skin to remind themselves that they'd interacted with the silence. And so I just thought that was interesting from, like, a... It is. It comes up a lot, interestingly. I wonder if there's, like, a a certain influence behind it because it also comes up in vampire academy another ya series where the um i'm blanking on the names but the protectors of the vampires essentially Mm -hmm. um whenever they kill this rogue vampire um they put a tally on their skin um to keep track of like it's like a show of it's like a trophy case almost like i killed all these people I, the vibe I was getting, though, from these tallies was because it's, like, 412. I'm guessing August has not killed 412 people. Um. <laughs> so, the one thing I'll say is, like, all of the things that we're saying, again, from a plot perspective, are not similar to August's situation. Okay. But I don't think there is a good literary tie-in for their tally situation that we know that I know of there may be and like once you discover it if if you have something you can tie it to let's talk about it but I think a lot of the representation in YA literature and tv shows like what we're talking about is Mm -hmm. keeping track of things that have happened um and I'm I don't necessarily think that that's in the same way representative of August situation but it's kind of hard without like revealing the details um so we'll we'll revisit kind of also like anyone who's ever stuck in prison right like if they're like keeping tallies or like how Juliet would keep her tallies when she was stuck in prison of like how many days she'd been in there (laughs) so it's interesting um let's see oh August trying to stab his hand to like prove that he's like bullet oh my god (laughs) I'm like, mm, I wish that would have worked out for Jude. <laughs> you made the the Curl Prince reference. I finally did not make another Curl Prince I reference. saved it for pop culture, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> it also reminds me of, like, basically if you combine the brashness of Jude with the superpowers of Luke Cage from Marvel, or I guess Juliet would be another good example, but Luke Cage from Marvel is specifically what I was thinking of, because he is straight bulletproof. His skin cannot be pierced, like, ever. Um, Then that's his superpower. He's from... I mean, he has his own Marvel show, but he was first introduced in Jessica Jones, and that's where I watched him. I love Luke Cage. He's so pretty. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. Nothing to do with this fuck. Sorry. Dreamily. <laughs> He's so pretty. Um, okay. This one is random. And there's no actual reason for me to make this pop culture reference. 
but other than character name. And this happened the first time I read the book, and it's still happening now. Um, but before I get into it, how would you describe Leo, like, features-wise, based on what we know? Buff, probably, very mm-hmm. intimidating, tall, built. I mean, that's another word for <laughs> What color is his hair? Brown. Okay. Why? I actually think it's described as fair. I think he's supposed to be blonde. Fair? No one describes hair as fair. I hate when people describe hair as fair. Like, just give it a color. Like, don't... Because fair could be, like, dirty blonde, which in a lot of cases actually looks brown, even though the roots are blonde. Um, yeah, but... I could, I could rant about color, hair color for so so many days. Most of the times that someone is saying someone looks fair, like a blonde. god, they're probably blonde, because white people. Mm-hmm. I like... Well, th- I was going to say, like... I think I'm also, because most people around me are brown-haired, I just assume everyone looks brown-haired. Okay. Um, So, I think he's supposed to be, like, a buff blonde guy with black eyes. Oh. (laughs) They all have black (laughs) eyes. Like, they all have, like, very, very dark eyes. Um, I think that's what he's supposed to look like. However... Because his name is Leo, and the only other character I know named Leo, other than the one from the Percy Jackson sequels, that doesn't count. I'm like, I'm not, I don't think about that. But there is a character in Veronica Mars, played by Max Greenfield, named Leo, and he's a cop, and he dates Veronica, and he comes back periodically every so often as, like, a returning extra, basically. And every time they talk about Leo in this book, I just picture Max Greenfield, Every time. Like, I can't not see Max Greenfield. And just because of the characters' names being Leo. Like, that's it. There's nothing about Max Greenfield that actually reminds me of the way this character is described. But I can't stop picturing Max Greenfield as August's older brother. And, like, Max Greenfield does not fit this description. Like, a really dark-haired, mid-sized Jewish guy is just, like, not what this character is supposed to be. But that's how I picture him, because of the character name. I get interference because one of my family names is Leo. (laughs) Culturally Chinese and (laughs) dark-haired. Yeah. Everyone's... The book's wrong. We are correct. We are correct. (laughs) Schwab, you're wrong. <laughs> but then it's like, I think about, like, the things that Leo is doing, and I imagine Schmidt from New Girl doing them, and it's just, <laughs> I can't take him seriously. That's why I need him out of the, off the page. I need more Ilsa, because I don't picture her in my head at all, so it's fine. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think that was everything for the prelude. What do you have for first one, chapter one? Um, I only have a couple. Um, the first one is, like, very random and kind of far-fetched. But I just kept thinking of Linus from Charlie Brown when August was talking about his attachment to the violin. And sure, of course, there's more reason than just, like, wanting to be near his musical instrument. And, like, it, there's some sort of mythical fantasy kind of explanation for why he needs it by his side. But, like, it's just, like, this idea of, like, Linus is always by his piano. Like, he's always playing music. He's you mean sad Schroeder. when he's... 
Short. Oh my god. Wow, Linus has his is, blanket. My dad is literally going to disown me. I'm sorry if he's listening because he is a Charlie Brown nerd. I mean, disclaimer: I have not watched Charlie Brown or read Charlie Brown in probably like 15 years. Anyway, so Schroeder, he's always by his piano, right? And he's always like, he pays no attention to anything else that's going on. It's just him and his piano. And that just reminded me of August and his violin. I'm really going to get disowned. Oh, my God. <laughs> we own, like, so many Charlie Brown things. I bought my dad a Charlie Brown pen, like, fancy, fancy, fancy pen. Oh my god, this is bad. Well, they adopt me because I was in your good man, Charlie Brown. So, like, I. They I know probably. The I mean, they basically already did. So. <laughs> like, come on. Um, if you gotta know your Charlie Brown stuff, the uh, the quiz to get into the family is Charlie Brown. No, I'm just kidding. That and, that and Billy Joel. <laughs> and winning a game um, of chronology. And winning a game, a game of chronology. <laughs> Um, and then my second one that I had was, uh, <laughs> this, like, the scene just reminded me so, the name for it, reminded me so much of The Fold from Shadow and Bone. Like, what is with this, like, folding, the scene? Like, oh, I thought you were gonna say Hunger Games. Oh, no. Because there's this seam in yeah. District 12 where they go to do all their yeah. shopping. That's so interesting. Now, I was thinking more, like, a division in areas. You have the yeah. seam in this novel and the fold. I mean, I'm guessing the fold is much more intense than the seam, but who knows? Um, it just reminded me of that. I just think the name similarity is really interesting, too. Like, we can't think of anything else. Like, come on. Let's let's think of something more interesting, guys. I need it to um, be called the shadow fold in Shadow and Bone. <laughs> Otherwise, if you just say the fold, I just go to that, that clip from Schitt's Creek where they're just like, fold in the cheese, Davis. <laughs> I think of that all the time when I'm folding in anything. It's, it, like, haunts me. I haven't even seen Schitt's Creek in full, but that... One clip, like, literally lives in my mind rent-free. It's, it's the most iconic clip, like, did probably ever. Just, it's... <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, no, that was, my, that was it. I just, that's so funny. Okay. Okay, so August, um, I had a couple. August practicing his facial expressions and, like, how much he needs to blink in the mirror reminded me so much of Bella Swan when she's trying to get ready to meet Charlie when she's a vampire. Oh my gosh. And they were like, blink, but don't blink too much. And she just goes... <laughs> Sorry, for the, uh, the listeners can't see. I just had a total spastic blink attack on, on camera. But um, I just it reminded me so much. And, like, practicing the right facial expressions and, like, how to move like a human. <laughs> to like blend oh in <laughs> he's basically bella swan <laughs> and he's always in his head so was bella swan true so i hope he's more interesting than bella swan he is more interesting than bella swan but still it's i'm sorry but it's really not hard to be more interesting than bella swan <laughs> it's true she's 
yeah. Okay, well, I just, that. <laughs> okay, I will say, I think Kristen Stewart ruined her, because Book Bella was actually quite funny. She annoyed me a lot, but she was quite funny at a lot of times, and she was much more sarcastic and sassy than actually came out in the movies. Well, I think it was a scripting issue, because I think that Kristen Stewart, like, we know that she can be very comedic from the movies that she did after that. It was, she wasn't good for the role, that particular role. Um, And then I think that they tore, they tried to make it way too dramatic, I think. Twilight was a joke, and they should have made it more of a jokey environment. They really stripped all of the comedy out of it when they really did. Like, they had a little bit from Charlie, and they basically placed all of the comedy comedic relief on Charlie alone. Like, you can't And Emmett. It was all Charlie and Emmett. Emmett. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they Uh, they could not shoulder all of that. It was a directing problem and a script writing problem. I I completely agree with that. Um, Oh, well. But I will say, like, I do think Book Bella is a little bit better than Movie Bella in general, but it's not hard to be more interesting than Bella Swan. Similar Twilight reference, the idea of, like, Emily eating some of the food to, like, cover for August reminds me of, like, when Bella would, like, cover for Edward about things um, that he didn't do as a human just to make things seem a little bit easier. Um... Like, when they were hanging out with her friends and stuff. And then this is really, again, really random, and I don't even know, like, why this relation came into my head, but as I was reading about, like, August talking about his violin, and, like, similar to yours with, like, Schroeder, and, like, just wanting to be close to it, and it having to do something with, like, the bigger picture of everything, but we don't yet know what that something is, it reminded me, reminded me a lot of Elliot Page's character, an Umbrella Academy. Because their character yeah. in the Umbrella Academy yeah. does something with a violin, and they're seemingly not magical, but then... I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't remember what happened. I very... I don't I either. don't remember Umbrella Academy I know at that all. It was, I know that it was important to the plot, and that when they played that, it, like, did something, and that's all I remember. <laughs> I think there was, like, an explosion or something. Yeah, that was it. That was it. Yeah, so, but, like, only when they played that one time and it all, like, yeah. came to them. Um, so I'm I'm getting – I just got some, like, vibes, some, like, visceral reactions that reminded me That's of Umbrella Academy. Wow. I need to rewatch Academy. I, I need to rewatch more than just season one. There's, like, three seasons. Now. <laughs> I know. It's really good. It's just – I feel like it's something that I want to watch with someone else who will, like, understand it, that I can talk to about it. Um, Okay, the iron thing where it only, like, impacts, like, two out of the three monster classes reminds me a lot of, like, Vampire Diaries, specifically with the originals, how a lot of things that bother normal vampires also bother the originals, but they can't, like, kill the originals in the same way that they can kill the normal vampires. So I'm getting the sense that iron's similar here. Like, it'll really irritate them, but it won't absolutely decimate them like it will the lesser classes of monsters. Mm-hmm. So, like, wood stakes, for example, sunlight, all of those things will kill normal vampires, but won't kill an original. Yeah. And the way that August was trying to lie and just, like, how it seems 
like they try to lie reminds me a lot of how folk fairy folk lie where they can like get around (laughs) the truth by saying certain opinions and as long as they believe them to be true they can speak them even if they're not actually true um yeah so seeing august play with that i was getting getting cruel prince vibes but yeah that's that's all i had nice references my normal overactive pop culture (laughs) no you always you have good ones though i always love hearing them yes i always have like a one or two and that's it (laughs) it's okay you i mean the good thing is like at least for most of mine you've also seen the source material that i'm talking about so you like buy into it (laughs) (laughs) i can vouch (laughs) amazing okay yes mvps you should go first since you're starting the book fresh um okay i don't want to start off with the protagonist i already decided this i want to give it to emily because i think it was a small gesture but i think that her biting off parts of august's lunch and wishing him well on his first day of school was just such a nice and mother very motherly gesture like she's Mm -hmm. not really his mother more of a mother figure as i understand it adopted Um, mother yeah and like clearly very cares very much cares for him and like Mm -hmm. that that i feel like in like being him being him him being a monster (laughs) it sounds so weird to say that um like someone who clearly doesn't eat human food and like has so much to worry about now that he's going off to school for the first time he's leaving the compound for the first time in his life that's a lot for him to take on um yeah so this is just a small little thing that now he doesn't have to worry about and she thought ahead and was like how can i make this burden a little bit lighter for him right um i really i thought that was really really cute so i wanted to give her a shout out as my mvp thanks emily yeah (laughs) love it um my mvp i think probably for somewhat similar reasons um is going to be ilsa and that's because I think she was doing the best, first off, doing the best that she could at, in like, that big sister role, like, trying to make sure August felt comfortable, make sure that he was, like, aware of what was going on and just felt mm-hmm. supported and safe and, like, actually happy about the decisions that he was making. Um, but I also think that whether strategically or not, her own way of, like, dealing with things is a good mental stimulation and distraction for August, which helps him not be afraid of the things that are coming. Um, And she also is one of the few that will actually, like, look into him and understand him to see when he's feeling a little bit of fear, when he's feeling a little bit of anxiety, whereas the humans aren't necessarily going to be able to pick up on those emotions um, in the way that his like true family can so yeah i'm gonna give it to elsa though august is my second choice because i love him yeah i think he would have been my other mvp if i hadn't chosen emily yeah but i wanted to i felt like she like deserved it no like, that's completely fair um not so kate elsa, she burned so. down a goddamn no, school she- <laughs> I feel like I'll give it to her at some point, probably multiple times. I get that feeling. But right now, like, you you can't really congratulate her on burning down a chapel. I feel like conscience. our delivery of MVPs to Kate is going to go a lot like our deliveries of MVPs to our other female protagonists, where we get so 
irritated with that. Not irritated, but, like, just, like, you're, like, why are you doing this? No, that's bad. Stop. Stop doing the bad thing, um, like, really early on. And it takes a while for us to be, like, oh, wait. Okay. You have a plan. It's going to be Character okay. development. Like, congratulations <laughs> on growing up. Like, we didn't even think to really give MVPs to Jude until the second book. No, so. we really didn't. Yeah. I like our True. choices. We're picking the sweet, the sweet ladies. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right, Julia, uh, how are we feeling about wine for the prelude and the first chapter? All right. I am saying that this chapter is like a medium-bodied wine. It's a wine that typically appeals... I wrote whole notes on this because I thought very long and hard about it. It's a wine that typically appeals to a lot of people, and it's a good starter wine, a beginner, like an entry into wine, like something you would pick up that a lot of people like that you know you, if as someone who's not really versed in wine, you'll probably like as well. Not everyone likes this. Like, I don't think you like this, but I would say a California Merlot. I know, I know. <laughs> you were special, though. It's a very common wine to have. I know. As a beginner wine. Um, and then as you progress, you will, of course, change your tastes. Mm -hmm. But the reason for this, and I thought long and hard about this, is because we get a lot of stuff that's happening. Um, it is like the entry into this new world. Um, and we have the darker notes, which are I would apply to Kate. And we have the lighter notes, which would apply to August. The darker notes are more of these like dark cherry flavors. Mm -hmm. Where you're like you're setting a church on fire, <laughs> fire. Yeah, and the grape uh, specifically is grown in California, which for a Merlot is a hotter environment than where it's typically grown in Europe. And then you have the light. Also, there's a lot of fires. Yes, that's true. <laughs> God, that's terrible. But yes, that's true. And then you have the lighter notes, like the vanilla notes, um, where they're smoother and more melodic for August. So you get that really good balance, and it's just like this good entry into this new new universe. And I would give it probably like, it sits around an 8 or a 9 out of 10 kind of Merlot. Like it's a pretty higher end Merlot because nice and high. there's a lot, lot to digest. Yeah. yeah, I like that. No, that's good. Um angst rating for <laughs> for these chapters it's hard because like and I feel like this book in general is going to be hard because neither of our teenagers are teen like they don't talk or act really like teenagers but I do think there's a decent amount of unnecessary angstiness and just like <laughs> fear confusion teenagey feelings in these chapters that like are very true to the characters as they are going to be written and, like, help to put them on a path towards potential character development. Like, they need these insecurities that they have. These They need these fears for them to be able to actually, like, launch into what this plot is going to be, right? Like, Kate mm -hmm. is feeling very weird about being away from her father, being away from home, and is, like, so anxious to be able to get back to that and, like, to prove herself and to make a point that she's just as strong as her father. Um, but all of that is stemming from a place of insecurity where she doesn't think that she actually is that strong. Um, and so I think that that's a lot of teenage angst, which makes sense, and we need it for the plot, but it's also not, like 
the best, <laughs> I guess. Um, like, not enough of a reason to, like, burn down a church. Just, like, try to have a normal conversation with your father about why you want to come home, maybe. But try that first uh. as a thought. Um, and then August, you know, for the most part, he's, like, trying to put himself out there, trying to, like, you know, be the big man on campus and, like, have everyone respect him and be, like, his big brother. But the second he really gets that chance and his security blanket gets taken away from him, he panics. Um, And he'll still do it. He'll still go through with everything that he needs to do. But, like, when his violin gets taken away from him, he gets really anxious and confused and, like, isn't sure if he can do it without his violin and, like, having that safety net with him. Um, So, again, the angst is based off of his own insecurities about, like, being in the real world without this clear tied to his own personality and like what he thinks makes him part of him or what he thinks is part of him um because clearly the violin plays a big part in like his own personality so I'm gonna go middle of the road for this one I'm gonna say five out of ten for for the angst it's not super unnecessary but there is kind of a lot of it that's hidden in the story even if it's not like shouting at us like it was in the cruel prince every other chapter (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So that's that's pretty much it for the episode this week. I, this was this one was longer than we were probably expecting it to be. Yeah, we, we went on a lot of tangents. We we did. We'll we'll cut a lot of those out. Um, but also I think there's a lot of world building. So as we progress into the first couple of chapters and like probably the whole first verse, there's a lot of world building that we just need to talk through and make sure that, like, we're on the same page about, know what's going on, do a lot of checking in on because the book can get really confusing if we're not doing those check-ins. Um, but that's it for this week. So you guys can follow us on social media to stay tuned of what book we're doing, just get more news about the pod and, like, what's going on. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unnecessary Angst Pod and on Twitter at UnAngstPod. And you can also email us to talk about Six of Crows or this book or really anything else related to books, YA or not, we're always happy to have a conversation. And our email is unnecessaryangstpod at gmail.com. And with that, we will talk to you all next week. Hope you have a good one. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.